0: Well, good morning, Chillicothe Bible Church. Good you know, I uh, I saw something good on Facebook this week. I know that's a a rare thing, so I thought I'd share it with you. Um, but uh, somebody had said, you know, you got two choices in the winter time. You can either have joy in the snow, or you can complain and have the same amount. <laughs> And so I thought, you know, that's a good word right there. Uh, A lot of times I have taken the latter choice. I've decided I'm going to try for the former and uh, have a little more joy in the wintertime. Uh, It's good to be with you again. I really missed being here this last week. Um, The uh, roads were impassable for a lot of you last week, and we canceled, and so I'm glad to be back with you. Uh, We're about four weeks away from our Wild Game Feast. Uh, As you came in this morning, you should have noticed, if you didn't, uh, they're right outside the door there in the back, Uh, little postcards like this. Um, We are almost halfway sold out (laughs) on our Wild Game Feast at this point, uh, which I think that puts us actually a little ahead of where we would normally be. We probably will sell out. So if you need tickets to that event, do see me as soon as possible, because it's very possible that uh, we will not have any uh, if it gets to be the last week or two before the event so uh, if you need to invite people this postcard is a good way of you know giving somebody something that you can put in their hand that um, you can invite them there's also a whole bunch of different areas to serve in uh, from our kitchen crew to set up, tear teardown, um, follow up after the event, uh, we need some additional tables uh, if, you, if you're if you thinking, you know what, I don't want to work, and I don't want to go, but I've got some money I can give you, um, I would happily take that too, uh, because uh, this event is not a fundraising event. We spend every bit uh, that we take in on ticket sales and a little more than that. So um, if you would like to uh, serve the Lord in that way, see me. Uh we can help you know how to do that. Now, with that, with that out of the way, let me just pray for us, okay? And then we'll open God's Word together. God, our Heavenly Father, we are grateful, and we are full of joy to get to be together, to get to have some time with one another and with you, and to proclaim your name and to worship you and, and to experience your greatness and your good, goodness to us. Uh, as we gather together as your people. Uh, Father, we we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that as we read what Jesus had to say and the things that he did in the Gospel of John, uh, Father, we pray that the word would come alive to us by your Holy Spirit and that you would be speaking through him to our hearts and changing us from the inside out. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, if you would join me in John chapter 7 here this morning, uh, we're, going to, uh, we're going to go through about the first half of this chapter, it's a long chapter, uh, and Jesus is at the Feast of Booths, okay, which is one of the fall feasts of the nation of Israel, uh, and we'll, uh, we'll just jump in here to the first section. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, I am not going up to this feast for my time is not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he went he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him in the, at the feast and saying, "Where is he?" And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, "No, he is leading the people astray." Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Now, let me let me catch us up to where we are in uh, in the history here uh, of Jesus' life. As you, as you look at Jesus' life. John gives us just snapshots of little incidents in Jesus' life and he really focuses most of his time and energy on the last week of Jesus' life. And so believe it or not, even though John has 20 chapters, uh, here in chapter 7 we're, in the, we're at the beginning of the last six months of Jesus' life. Uh, this is, the, this is Actually, we know the dates when this is taking place. Uh, this is uh, at the, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of, Tabern- of uh, Tabernacles, it, which takes place in the fall. In this particular year, A.D. 32, this is uh, during the week of September 10th to 17th, A.D. 32. Uh, he was last in Judea for a feast in Jerusalem, and when he was last there... Jesus healed a man who had been crippled for 38 years. And that was an amazing miracle. And it was one for which everyone should have been praising God. But the religious leaders did not. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were not excited about Jesus. In fact, verse 1 tells us here in this chapter that they were seeking to kill him. Why was that? Well, partly because they did not agree with his teaching over and over that he is the Son of God and the Messiah. They rejected that. But also because he healed a man. When he healed that man, he healed him on the Sabbath. And then he told the man to take up his mat and go home with it. And so Jesus had not only done work on the Sabbath... But he encouraged someone else to do work on the Sabbath from their perspective. And so they saw him not only as a lawbreaker, but as someone who also encouraged lawbreaking in other people and therefore worthy of death. And so Jesus left and he focused his ministry in Galilee, especially around the city of Capernaum, which is up there around the Sea of Galilee, And you, and then, so this has been about six months that have gone by where Jesus has not been in Judea. He's just been down, he's been up in Galilee, uh, and his, and his brothers come to him and say, you know, you really ought to go up to the feast. If you lived within 20 miles, according to Jewish law, you're required to go up to the feast, uh... Where Jesus lives in Capernaum is further than that. He's not required to go by the law, but it's a popular feast. There's going to be hordes of people, hundreds of thousands of people are going to pack into Jerusalem for this feast. And the Feast of Booths is called the Feast of Booths, or sometimes it's called Sukkot, uh, because uh, what they did was built little temporary huts to live in for a week. And it was to remind them of the fact that they had once lived in temporary dwellings in the wilderness. And now they don't live in temporary dwellings anymore because God had kept his promises and brought them into the land and had given them permanent dwellings to live in. But this was an annual reminder that, hey, we used to be camping out for 40 years. Now, I like camping, certain times of the year especially, you know, like there's a few weeks in October that it's glorious, and it gets cold at night, and you can sleep, okay? I I hate camping in the summer because it's hot, and you're laying on that that, that air mattress, you know, and you get that bead of sweat between your back and the mattress, and it's miserable, and you can't really sleep in your sleeping bag, but right? But... In the fall, it's great to go camping. And so that's what they're doing. They have the, the annual fall national campout. out uh, as they go and they worship God in Jerusalem. And they build these little huts and little tents and so forth. Uh, there were rules about how you had to build it. You had to be able to see the stars at night. And you had to have uh, gaps or, or thin enough fabric where light would come through. Couldn't be a big heavy waterproof tent. You had to be able to see light come through. You had to have, be able to see stars at night. And Jesus' brothers say, you should go up to the feast. There's going to be lots of people there. And, and then all your disciples can see the works you're doing. Now, I think that's a barbed comment, by the way. Because John tells us that his, deci- his brothers did not believe in him at this point in his life. And they know that about six months previous to this incident right here, that the majority of Jesus' disciples have walked off, remember? Jesus starts teaching about what kind of Messiah he is, and about what's required to be his disciple, and about, and about all but about the twelve say, you know what, this is hard teaching, who can swallow it? I'm out. And they leave en masse. And Jesus' brothers say, yeah, you know, you'll be able to show your disciples, all 12 of them, you know, uh, all of the great you know, and mighty ministry that you're doing. It'll be a great opportunity for you to show who you really are. I mean, after all, if you want to be well-known, you want to be somebody, you've got to go to Jerusalem. Now, this is this is again this is a barbed comment. This is not this is not the comment based on faith. This is mockery. If you really think you're important, Jesus, why don't you go go where the important people are? Look what Jesus says in response. Let me paraphrase here. This he, is what he says People don't hate you. And the reason they don't hate you is because you don't challenge them in any way. But they hate me because my presence shines the light on their sin, and they hate having their sin exposed. And there will be a day for me to show myself, but it isn't here yet. You guys think any time is the right time, but you don't really understand me. You don't understand God's mission. You don't understand God's timing for these things. And so you go on up to the feast. I'll go when the time is right. And by the way, uh, some people some people get confused in um, what Jesus says. When he says, I'm not going up to this feast. There's a, a word that should be there. I'm not going up yet to this feast. The word there can be translated that way. Uh, the ESVs left that part of it untranslated, but... But that word should be there, the word yet, I'm not going up yet to the feast. And so they all leave. It's a big family event. Everybody goes together in big groups, and Jesus doesn't go with a big group. He goes up alone by himself, and he's not, he doesn't go up publicly proclaiming himself Messiah He went up so quietly, in fact, that many people are wondering where he is. Like, hey, don't you think Jesus should be here? And where is he? The expectation is is that if Jesus is the Messiah, they're going to see him publicly arrive. But he doesn't do that. The religious leaders, I'm sure, are among the people who are asking, where is he? Because they want to make a public scene and arrest him and then put him to death. And that's why they're, they're asking. But other people are asking because they're curious. But anybody who isn't one of their religious leaders is afraid to seem too curious about Jesus. And so they only whisper to one another. It says they're just muttering. They're, no one is speaking openly. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now, as you're reading John's gospel... You need to remember that John's expression, the Jews, is almost always his shorthand for the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem that oppose Jesus and his ministry, not Jewish people in general. And based on the critical response that they gave Jesus, I think John's comment that the Jews, quote, marveled at his teaching is not so much an expression of admiration as one of dismissal. they're amazed not that at the content of what Jesus has to say but that he dares to teach them at all the question then how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied leaves out what i think is an implied prepositional phrase with us with us how is it that he has learning when he's never studied with us? Because they are the ones they think that have learning. We're the ones that have the we're the ones who know God. We're the ones that have the Bible. We're the ones that know everything. We're the teachers. Where does this guy get off setting himself out as a teacher in the temple of all places? when he's never studied with us, how is it that he has any learning to even share? You get me? This is where they're coming from. They think this, this is some random carpenter from the hillbilly country in Galilee. He doesn't have anything to say worth listening to, does he? Of course not. It's a question of authority. It's who puts you in charge, Jesus? Who died and left you in charge that that you can presume to teach those of us who really have learning? Don't you know that you don't know anything? Look how Jesus responds. I think this is beautiful. He says, my teaching, since you're wondering about the source, isn't mine. I didn't invent this. But it's His who sent me. Who's that? God the Father. And if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. In other words, the assumption is, if you're speaking on your own behalf, giving what you have invented by yourself, then you're a false teacher. And that's generally true, right? Uh That's still true today. If somebody comes up with something that is totally unique, that no one has ever, in reading their Bible, ever come up with before, chances are you're dealing with a heretic and a false teacher, right? One of my professors in seminary used to tell us, folks, if it's new, it's not true, and if it's true, it's not new, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right In 2,000 years of church history, someone has said or thought everything that is true about God's Word at some point before. And if you come up with something totally unique, you better check yourself. Because if it's new, it's most likely not true. And, and Jesus is saying something very similar. He's saying, he's saying look... I didn't invent this. My authority that I'm teaching with is not my own. I'm not coming under my own, uh, assuming that I have my own authority. I'm coming based on God's authority and God sent me. And I am seeking not my own glory, but the glory of Him who sent me. And as a result, you can trust that what I'm saying is true. And then he gets he gets after them a little bit directly he says has not moses given you the law none of you keeps the law in other words if you guys think you really understand moses how come you don't obey him mr high and mighty teacher <laughs> how about that Right? How about the fact that Moses gave you the law, but you don't obey it? Why do you seek to kill me? He is dropping the hammer on these guys. He's saying, look, you want my credentials? Fine. I speak for God Himself who sent me to teach you. And if you really wanted to obey God, you would know that my teaching is from Him. And since you don't, by the way, listen to me. That ought to tell you something, that really you don't want to obey God. Because I didn't come here on my own. God himself sent me. I'm not speaking on my own behalf, seeking my own glory, implied statement, like you are. But I seek the Father's glory. And you guys who think so much of Moses and the law, well, if you really loved the law, you wouldn't be trying to kill me. Because if you remember, one of the Ten Commandments says, "Shall not murder." And that's what you guys have in your hearts towards me. And that is really the bottom line issue. They don't really want to do God's will, not really. What they want is to appear righteous in front of people and they can't have someone they regard as a backcountry upstart telling all the people that these guys have missed the boat and they need to follow him instead. And so here's how they respond. Look at the text. This is amazing. You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. In other words, you're nuts. Nobody wants you dead. You're delusional, Jesus. And Jesus responds by teaching again. And in his teaching, he names the elephant in the room. He says, I did one work. What was the one work? I healed a crippled man on the Sabbath. And you condemn me for doing it. You think that a guy who heals another man on the Sabbath day can't be from God. But all all that your objection shows is that you don't really understand the law of God that you teach. Because you say that you can circumcise your boy on the eighth day if the eighth day happens to be the Sabbath. And you can. That's legitimate. And Jesus is saying, look, there is a priority to things in the Sabbath. In fact, the, the, in, in the law, that that keeping the Sabbath is important enough that sometimes there would be work that would have to be done on it, including circumcision. That you were to do this on the eighth day, regardless of what day of the week that that was, and if it was the Sabbath, we're still doing it. And the reason was, the Jews held that it was right to do anything good for somebody on the Sabbath day, that that was not considered work. And so, for example, if your neighbor's uh, goat fell down a well, you could go and help your neighbor pull his goat out. If your boy needed to be circumcised, he could be circumcised. If, uh, If someone got sick, you could provide care for them because that was not considered work just because it was the Sabbath. And he's saying, look here, you guys think that doing good to one part of a man's body is sufficient to override the law about the Sabbath. And you're right, it is. But I did good to a man's entire body. And now you're stumbling and mumbling and complaining and hating me and wanting to murder me for doing good to a man's entire body. In other words, guys, if you really understood the law, you'd understand that doing good to the whole person is better than doing good to one part of him. Amen? And so this is a rebuke to these guys' self-righteousness. And they're setting themselves up as the standard for right and wrong. And Jesus claiming authority not only to teach, but as the one from God who has the right to tell them what is right and what is wrong. And they have failed to recognize who Jesus is. And that's the issue we see in verses 25 to 36. Look at these verses here. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this not the man I know him, for I have come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his time had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me where I'm going. You cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am you cannot come? Let me summarize here what's going on. One of the big controversies surrounding Jesus is where he is from. The common thought is that he is from Galilee, from the region of the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. And they assumed that Jesus, therefore, is not from the right tribe or the right place to be the Messiah. And in fact, there's also some folks who think that the Messiah is just going to appear mysteriously and nobody's going to know where he came from. But they all know this guy comes from Galilee and so he doesn't meet either the mysterious appearance school of thought or the folks who know what the Bible says in the Old Testament, which is that he's going to be born in Bethlehem in Judah of the tribe of Judah, descended from David. But they don't know that he was born in Bethlehem, and that he is of the tribe of Judah, that he is descended from David on both his mother's side and his father's. But more than that, they don't recognize the bigger issue of where Je- where else Jesus is from. Amen? <laughs> he says, and so he spends a lot of time talking about, I, you think you know where I'm from, but you don't really know. And, and in fact, where I'm going is where I am from, and you can't come there. Where's he talking about? Heaven! Heaven! <laughs> he's like, in a little while, I'm going back to where I am really from. I'm going back into the presence of my Father who sent me. And you will not be able to come there. They're totally confused. He, they, they don't understand a word that he's saying. And so they're trying to come up with plausible explanations. They're like, well, you know, there's Jews that live all around the Mediterranean world. Maybe he's going to go out among them. Maybe he's going to go preach to the the Greek-speaking world of the Roman Empire. Maybe he's going to go to the Jews in other countries. Because we don't want to go there, so maybe that's what he means about where I'm going. You can't come. Very few of them get it. But notice, some of them do. It says, many of the people believed in him. They understand Jesus' teaching and his miracles reveal who he is, and so they believe. Now, there are several things that we could get out of this passage. And, and we could spend a lot of time doing it frankly we we you can see in it the importance of waiting on God's timing and doing things in accordance with his plan that's what Jesus does in his in the incident with his brothers he says look God has a plan and a purpose and a timing to the events in my life and I'm going to follow that and and by the way is that true for you and me too yes yes And you need to wait on his timing and live in accordance with his plan. And and Jesus doesn't allow even his family to push him into doing something other than what God has said. It's a good principle to learn from this passage. We could see that Jesus isn't afraid to call a spade a spade. And he rejects the temptation to fitting in and being popular and seeking publicity for its own sake. And that is a complete rebuke to the publicity-seeking, famous-for-being-famous culture that we live in. Jesus is not afraid to swim upstream of everybody else's expectations. There's a lot to learn about Jesus' mastery of the Scriptures and how He used them to feed the spiritually hungry and to confront the sinfully self-righteous. But the biggest thing that I see in this passage, this section of Scripture we've looked at, and what I think is the center of the, of the Scriptures we looked at today is verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, then he will know my teaching is from God. Don Carson, the Bible scholar, explains it this way. He says, the point is, that a seeker must be fundamentally committed to doing God's will. It's a faith commitment. God then fills the seeker's horizon. God's will is not simply to be thought about and assessed as if God were the object that we might politely examine and dissect and discuss, picking and choosing what we like of Him. The faith commitment envisioned here renders impossible any attitude that sets us up as judges of God's ways. The person who chooses to do God's will discovers that Jesus' teaching explains it. And that Jesus doesn't speak on his own, but as the word of God. Let me just clarify that a little more in other words when you come to faith in Jesus recognize him for who he really is because you want to do God's will then what you discover is that God is not a subject to be mastered he is a person to be followed And then God fills your life and your heart with the understanding that Jesus' teaching, the way He lived, the the things that He taught are the way of living life in a way that is pleasing to God. And if we imitate Him, that we will do it. But the faith commitment happens first. And then the doing of God's will. Now, Consider your life for just a minute, as I consider mine. I know that you like Jesus' teaching. In fact, if you ask most people what their favorite section of the Scriptures is, a lot of people will say Psalms. A lot of people will say, um, you know, they like the stories of the Bible. Some people will say Romans, if they're, you know, Bible nerds. They'll say that, right? Um, A lot of pastors will say that. But a lot of people, what they love about the Bible is the Gospels and the stories about Jesus and listening to His teaching and seeing His life. And I know that most of us have long since put our faith in Jesus. But let me ask you a penetrating question. As you look at your life, Do you want to do God's will? Not talk about it, not dissect it, not think about it, not memorize it, but to do it. To do it, to put it into practice. Or are you content to pick and choose what you like from Jesus and ignore whatever is uncomfortable or is inconvenient? Or is not in in keeping with having you yourself determine the direction of your life? Do you want to do God's will? Because men and women, boys and girls, the cost of following Jesus is high. It's high. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees of His day refused to pay it because they will not recognize His authority over them. They refuse. But shouldn't we, who worship Him as Savior and as Lord, also be willing to follow wherever He leads? Wherever He leads. Shouldn't doing God's will fill our thoughts and our minds and our days and shape us in every part of our lives? As I consider my life, I confess to you that it doesn't always fill mine. In many ways and on some days, doing God's will is not always my heart's desire but i want it to be i long for it to be i want to do god's will and i believe the same thing is true of you also and i am thankful when i realize these things and i realize all the time if you if you spend any time in your bible at all you will realize very quickly who god is and how far Short, you fall from him. And as I read a passage like this and as I study it and as I, as I reflect on my life and the way that I live, I realize, you know what, I don't always want to do God's will. Sometimes I want to do my will. Sometimes I want my words to come out of my mouth because what, what he would say wouldn't make me feel nearly as satisfied. as <laughs> what I want to say right now. Right? But I long for my will to come into alignment with His. For me to want to do His will in every part of my life. And in the meantime, while I am growing up into the measure of the stature that belongs to Christ, I am really, really thankful for the gospel. I'm really, really thankful that we are forgiven as we repent, as we return to Christ, as we confess our sin as we confess the ways that we fall short in doing His will and sometimes in even wanting to do His will. And so now I want to pray. I want to ask God to help us to repent. And to confess to Him the times that we haven't done His will or sought His will. And I want to ask God for the enablement of His Holy Spirit as we go from this place because one of the beautiful things about the Bible is it presents to us God in all His glory and the truth of who He is and what His standards are and the holiness He requires and then we get grace. We get grace to forgive, grace to confess, grace to repent, grace to be given a new start beginning of each day as we come to the Lord. So I want to go to the Lord together and that as we go from this place we might go forth joyful in our forgiveness and renewed in our commitment to do His will. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, in many times and in various ways, I have sought My will rather than Yours. Father, I pray pray that this morning that for me and for these, Your people, that our prayer would always be, Father, not My will, but Yours be done. Father, we want to do Your will. Here in these moments as we pray, Father, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would be speaking to our hearts and revealing any part of us where we have gone rogue. We've decided we'll have our own will. Father, I want to give a a moment just for each person to, in their own soul, confess to You these areas and these times, these decisions, these words, these actions. Thoughts that we might be forgiven. And Father, having confessed, we now rest in your forgiveness and the certainty that you love us with an everlasting love and that underneath all of us are your everlasting arms which will never let us go. And Father, we we pray that we might go from here joyful in our forgiveness and excited to go forth and to do your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.